Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. The year after a presidential election is generally the sleepiest time in election land. No midterms, no national election, and no invisible presidential primary. But it's during this relatively sleepy period that one of the most interesting political contests in the country is playing out the race for mayor of New York City. Now, before you write this off as my own hometown bias, hear me out. New York City has a larger population than all but a dozen states. If the region were a country, only a dozen countries would have a larger GDP. What happens in New York City also matters electorally. The race is where some of the strongest disagreements within the Democratic Party will get decided by some of the party's most devoted voters. 75% or more of New Yorkers vote for Democrats in national elections, and its diverse population embodies many of the demographic groups that make up the Democratic Party. But that doesn't mean it's overwhelmingly progressive. Just ask Mike Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani. New York was hit early and hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, and the future of work, education, and public health are some of the fault lines, like in many places around the country, in this race. After years of historically low unemployment, the unemployment rate in the city now sits at 11.5%, and the income inequality gap still ranks among the highest in the nation. The crime rate, like in many American cities, is rising at a time when activists are calling for police reform, creating a challenging dynamic for politicians. New York is going to try to settle on how, or at least with whom, it wants to address these issues in less than a month. The primary is on June 22nd, and the winner on the Democratic side is likely to win the general election this fall. Polling suggests it's still very much an open race. During the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time on our Thursday podcasts tracking this election and seeing what it can tell us about where urban politics and the Democratic Party are headed. To kick things off, I've invited on political reporter from New York One, Gloria Pazmino. Hello, Gloria, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And also here with us is reporter for Politico New York, Aaron Durkin. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me on. So for someone not familiar with the Democratic Party for New York City mayor, can you give us a lay of the land in terms of how the candidates are faring and the ideological visions that are on offer? So I think we should probably start with the basics, which is to tell you a little bit about the candidates. And uh, there's actually several candidates in this primary, but we've been focusing on the top eight. There's a first tier to that eight and then a second tier and I'm sure that everyone who is listening so far has at least heard about Andrew Yang, who ran for president and is now running for mayor and is in this primary election. We also have Eric Adams. He is currently the Brooklyn Borough president. He's a former police captain, also running in this election. We have Maya Wiley, former counsel to the current mayor, Bill de Blasio. We have city comptroller Scott Stringer. He has been in politics in New York City for a long, long time, nearly three decades. And Aaron, help me out. Who have I left out? I think we got then Catherine Garcia, who was formerly the sanitation commissioner under de Blasio, as well as having a lot of other jobs overseeing Ms. Fix-It type projects. Ray McGuire, who is a Wall Street executive, uh, and Diane Morales, who is a former nonprofit executive who is probably the furthest uh, to the left in the race. 
and Sean Donovan, the former HUD secretary and also the commissioner of housing and urban development under the Bloomberg administration and Obama's budget director. And I think that should make eight. So how is that field of eight shaping up in terms of the issues that are dividing them? Who's faring particularly well in the race so far? First of all, the big disclaimer here is no one really knows how this race is going to turn out. There hasn't been a lot of good, reliable polling. The big name public pollsters that have polled New York City mayor's races in the past are kind of sitting this one out. Uh, There's also ranked choice voting for the first time. And so anything we tell you about kind of who's up and who's down is a best guess more than it's really predictive of what the outcome is going to be. But the three people who have been ahead recently are Yang. He was sort of perceived as the front runner for a long time, several months. And then Eric Adams kind of began catching up to him. Lately, Catherine Garcia, who was endorsed by the New York Times, as well as the New York Daily News, has been looking pretty viable. Scott Stringer had always been viewed as a potential front runner, has a lot of experience in city politics and was kind of running to the left had a lot of progressive endorsements. However, he was accused of sexual misconduct 20 years ago. He lost a lot of his endorsements because of that. He still has been looking somewhat viable in the polls, but he's kind of uh, had a bit of a crash because of those allegations. Yeah. And I think for those who may not be as familiar with New York City politics, it's important to mention the lay of the land. And that is that it's a close primary town. So as you said at the beginning, whoever wins this primary election is likely to become the next mayor. It's obviously New York City. So a very, very democratic, blue liberal town. Democrats outnumber Republicans. And so we often see these very, very crowded primaries We saw a similar scenario nearly eight years ago when Bill de Blasio was elected, and we're seeing a similar setup here this time around. I think there are other things that we have to take into account that is both, as Aaron mentioned, the fact that we will have ranked choice voting for the first time, but also that for the first time, this is going to be a June primary. Historically, the primary was held in September. So we know that there's really a lot of changes to the way this election is happening, and that is affecting the voters and how much attention they're paying and when. The third factor, and the probably the most obvious one, is that we are coming out of the pandemic, and although many of us would like to think it's very removed now, the presidential election is actually not that far away. And so when I talk to voters, I often hear people say to me, we just went through this other massive, important election. Once it was over, we turned off from politics and we haven't been paying attention yet. So the amount of time that people have to really engage is much, much shorter this time around. So we expect to really see a rush of interest in terms of the news coverage and everything that's going to happen leading up to that election in the next four weeks. I think those are really important caveats. Everything you said there, what Aaron said about the dearth of high-quality polling, the New York Times reported this week that a lot of the brand-name high-quality pollsters like Siena College, for example, are sitting out specifically because they're worried about polling a ranked-choice voting election, and they think it's going to be challenging, and essentially they don't want to get it wrong. So unfortunately, we have less information as a result of that. So understanding all those caveats, still what we see is that the top three at this point in time, based on 
various different polls that we do have. Emerson College is still polling, thankfully, so we have that. And then there are other independent pollsters, lobby groups, internal polls from campaigns. We see Eric Adams, Catherine Garcia, and Andrew Yang making up that top three group. Relative to the field, all three of those people are moderates, right? Andrew Yang is kind of running as a business-friendly candidate. He's got a lot of Michael Bloomberg's folks on his team. Eric Adams, a former cop, a former Republican, very much running on a campaign of public safety and dealing with crime first. Catherine Garcia, maybe a little less clear where she is politically, but she didn't even try to get the Working Families Party endorsement. She suggested that the Working Families Party, which is this big progressive group in the state, endorse Diane Morales instead. So clearly not branding herself as a progressive. In an environment where we see AOC winning primaries and we see big protests last June, people calling for defunding the police and the current administration even trying in some ways to do that, where are the progressives? What's happening? Well, I mentioned earlier, a lot of them had sort of put their money on Scott Stringer. He is someone who had always been a career politician, had always been sort of an institutional guy, so did not really emerge from the progressive movement himself, but did embrace a lot of their positions. Not the slogan, defund the police, but he did say he would cut it by a billion dollars. He did on housing, on education, on a lot of issues, take the sort of left position. And so the Working Families Party initially endorsed him. A lot of the young lefty politicians who had won office got behind him and endorsed him. He was kind of their best bet. And then the sexual misconduct allegations came up and they all bailed. A few didn't, but most of them did, especially the activist left types. And you do have Maya Wiley, who's a viable candidate, but hasn't been at the top of the field. You have Diane Morales, who recently, she's been sort of like the favorite of the furthest to the left, but she's having some drama of her own. Her staff was trying to unionize. A bunch of people got fired. There were allegations of mistreatment, a whole morass of issues that have kind of undermined her claim to be the pure progressive. I mean, the people who seem to be doing the best are the ones who say, I'm against defund the police. I'm going to tackle this spike in violence, who have taken moderate positions on education issues, charter schools, housing, things like that. In some ways, some of these candidates are to the right of the current mayor, de Blasio. Like, for instance, Eric Adams and now Andrew Yang has embraced as well, wanting to bring back this like controversial police unit that was anti-crime, plain clothes, and they had a lot of allegations of abuses. The current mayor got rid of it. Some of them want to bring it back. So in some ways, they're actually to to the current mayor's right. Yeah, and I think what Aaron just explained there really, in my opinion, illustrates one of the biggest themes that we have seen throughout this election, and that is that the left is actually quite fractured, and it has been since the beginning, even when a lot of them were coalescing behind Scott Stringer before he had his scandal that sort of made everyone run in different directions. You could see that there was fracturing behind within the left. They didn't love the idea that Scott Stringer is very much an establishment politician that's been part of the system in this city, like I said, for nearly 30 years. They don't like that he's a white man from Manhattan. We've had white mayors. We haven't had a woman mayor. And we've only had one uh, black mayor in the city of New York. So for the progressive left to get behind a candidate that didn't fully embody all of these ideas really led to a lot of that fracturing that we're still seeing today. It was another good example when the Working Families Party did come out in support of Scott Stringer from talking to people behind the scenes and talking 
to people that were working towards making sure that that endorsement happened, you could see that the left just wasn't totally satisfied. And I would say there's even less satisfaction now that he has faced this sexual harassment allegation, which, by the way, he has denied. And also there is some internal fighting, I would say, over the quote-unquote viability of other candidates. And I've heard and seen a lot of this as it pertains to Diane Morales. Diane Morales has a lot of energy from young people, new voters, people who have become politically active in the last couple of years. If we were only measuring uh, you know, social media and Twitter stuff, I would say that she has one of the best followings. But as Erin said, she has been facing a lot of drama and internal turmoil in her operation over the last couple of days. So all of this results in people who are watching this leading to the conclusion that there is not a sophisticated operation there, one that would be needed to run a successful campaign for mayor. I also think it's important to mention the labor aspect of all of this. This is very much a union town. And that part of the political establishment has coalesced behind Eric Adams. Right. And he has a lot of the city workers unions, which, you know, it's important to point out. Unions are associated with the progressive movement, but a lot of unions are not necessarily that far to the left. They want to protect the benefits that they have. They're about wages and bread and butter issues. So a lot of them are behind Adams. Uh, Stringer has the teachers union. Wiley has the largest healthcare union, 1199. But as Gloria said, Adams has a lot of those. Yeah, you mentioned that the left was fractured. It seems like in some ways the moderates are fractured too. They're just all faring better, right? There's still a a three-way split at the moment amongst the moderates. I'm curious, what do you think is driving popularity in this race? Is it a particular issue? Is it celebrity? Is it identity, ideology? You know, the people who are doing well Why are they performing well? I would say in the beginning, early stages of the race, when we saw Andrew Yang really surging to the top and whatever little polling was available at that time, people were being asked what names they were most familiar with. Andrew Yang, of course, came in with a lot of name recognition, name ID from the presidential trail. But that really boosted his media coverage, the amount of attention that he was getting. And he, I would argue, skillfully took that attention and then started rolling out this very energetic campaign at a time where a lot of candidates had not yet um, really begun campaigning on the street. And what I mean by that, as you are all well aware, we're coming out of this pandemic. It was still cold a couple of months ago. And a lot of this campaigning was happening on Zoom, on forums, on mediums like the one we're having right now, where people were just looking at each other through a screen. So a lot of that retail politicking, you know, that classic going into a bodega, going into a store, standing outside a subway station and shaking people's hands, didn't really happen until recently. But Andrew Yang got out there sort of early. He combined his name recognition, the fact that he was going out, and he was rolling out this sort of happy-go-lucky, energetic, bring-the-city-back campaign. And I would say that's what got him the most attention. I'm not sure it gets him through the end, 
So that's where we would, I think we see the celebrity factor, if we could call it that, dominate. Now I think we're starting to see more of a focus on the issues. New York City is unfortunately going through a period where shootings are on the rise. This is something that we see usually in the months leading up to summer and then throughout the summer. And now I would say public safety and criminal justice has sort of taken center stage in terms of what issues are dominating this race. Eric Adams has really gone straight at this spike in violence and said, you know, he's a he's a former police captain. He's also African-American. He has a lot of supporters in the black community in central Brooklyn and southeast Queens. And he says, you know, I'm the one who can handle this and who can really take it seriously. Catherine Garcia has sort of like the no-nonsense appeal. She's a manager. She knows where all the light switches are in City Hall type of thing. She's kind of like the wonky person who knows all about the waste stream and the sanitation garages and all of that. They've also just kind of been trying to chip away at Andrew Yang because he has also had a series of controversies. You know, he left the city at the height of the pandemic for a second home upstate. He has never voted in a mayoral election before. He's said some controversial things related to wanting a crackdown in street vendors or he got in some trouble for laughing to a comedian who said some misogynistic comments on the street, things like that. So they've sort of been trying to chip away at him while sort of each pulling out their own lane. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of energy around the left, but the broad uh, New York City Democratic electorate, which is the vast majority of the city because, you know, we don't have a lot of Republicans here, they maybe just want more moderate themselves. And they're concerned about these bread and butter things of dirty streets and public safety, especially when there is the feeling of a real threat with violence going up. I want to follow up on that more in just a second. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Aaron, you were talking about the New York Democratic electorate more broadly in comparison to uh, perhaps more energetic left flank of the party. If you had to describe New York politically, how would you do it? What does the New York electorate look like? Obviously, it's it's no one thing. It's incredibly diverse, both ideologically, racially, ethnically, and in terms of background. It is a democratic town. It is a union town. I would say, generally speaking, you don't find a lot of people who, in terms of the social issues, people are generally down the line liberal, which all of the candidates are as well. But there's no monolith here. You have everything from your sort of young, transplant, progressive, activist, voters, the type of folks who are able to elect AOC, to your older, middle-class, Black homeowners in Southeast Queens who may have a different set of interests, to your sort of traditional Upper West Side white liberals, to everything in between immigrants from all over the world who are becoming naturalized and and becoming part of the political process for the first time. So it's very hard to characterize. There's no prototype of the New York City voter. It's everyone has their different base in a different part of the city or in a different ideological lane. And it's all over the place in that way. I think one of the interesting things that we have seen during the season is that ranked choice was supposed to encourage candidates to campaign all over, right? Because you wanted to appeal to as many people as possible. Ranked choice is supposed to dissuade you from just campaigning to your base. It's supposed to encourage you to go out and get more voters because you want people to rank you. But I think we've actually seen the opposite here. We're still seeing candidates go out and make an effort of securing certain blocks. So we see a good example of that with Andrew Yang and the Orthodox Jews, for example, a very reliable block of voters that we know historically has voted in a block. So he's gotten a lot of support from them. We see that with labor union members and and, and city workers, and we see it with parts of central Brooklyn, southeast Queens, where most of the city's black vote is concentrated. So it's been interesting to watch how candidates target different parts of the city, depending on where those voters live. Definitely a democratic liberal town, but I think depending on what's happening at any given time in the city and during an election, that happens to take hold. If we think about the history of the last couple of elections, when Rudy Giuliani was elected, followed by Bloomberg, if we take a look back at what was happening in history, then the fact that Rudy comes in at a period of time where violence is rising, Bloomberg comes in after 9-11. So you sort of have to tie these things together. Now we're coming out of a pandemic. There's all these things that have happened as a result. And usually the biggest issue is what dominates that election. And I would predict that right now the biggest issue is becoming quality of life, public safety, whether or not the city is, quote unquote, heading in the right direction. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that we're coming out of a pandemic. And, you know, I've been in New York this whole time and it very much feels like life is changing and COVID-19 to some extent still looms large. I looked at the most recent Emerson poll, which was out this week, and it asked New Yorkers to list their top priority. And I was surprised to find out that COVID-19 actually wasn't that close to the top. So here were the results. It was 
20% of likely Democratic voters said that crime was their top issue. 17% said housing. 12% said homelessness. 11% COVID-19. 10% police reform. 10% education. And 9% jobs. So that is certainly what you said. The quality of life issues, the crime, housing, homelessness, things like that are moving towards the top. What does that mean for this race? Well, I think the the finding you just said is notable, but it's also important to note that the pandemic has impacted the city so much that every one of those issues actually now is shaped by what has happened in the past year and changed with the pandemic. When you talk about crime, the question of when did crime start going up? It started going up toward the end of the like absolute lockdown last summer. And it's been attributed to all of these frustrations that are being acted out, all of the economic dislocation and the social dislocation that has occurred during the pandemic, as well as the fact that the criminal justice system was shut down. When you talk about education, the big thing is going to be bringing our school system back from over an entire school year where we did not have normal in-person education. When you talk about housing and homelessness, you have this idea of we have an eviction moratorium right now, but we could have a huge exodus of people getting forced out of their homes if that is lifted without them actually having the help that they need. You know, as far as homelessness, it's always been a big issue, but it's become more visible in the sense of when you're in business districts or you're on the subway and there aren't as many people around, these sort of mental health issues and substance abuse issues suffered by the homeless individuals are more uh, visible and more noticeable. So even if people don't think of it as the pandemic anymore because people are getting vaccinated and it seems like we're moving in the right direction, it still is going to completely dominate what the task that the next mayor has. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one thing I would say that we were expecting to have a worst case scenario, if that's possible, from the fiscal end of things. We were expecting for the city's fiscal health to really be in much worse shape than it is now. It isn't as bad as we thought it was going to be because the federal government has come in with funding that the city was expecting to get so that we could make up some of what was lost as a result of the pandemic. But as Aaron said, everything going forward, everything this mayor does next will have to not only fix whatever the pandemic broke, but everyone says that we should do it. And not so we go back to pre-pandemic levels, but that we improve, you know, so that if there was, in fact, a housing crisis before the pandemic, there was, in fact, a homelessness crisis before the pandemic, the pandemic made everything worse. Uh, and made it really visceral in a lot of ways, walking through Midtown and, and you see the homelessness crisis. Maybe people notice it more now because it's emptier in certain parts of town. But it's not like it was brought there because of the pandemic. It was always there. So I think this next mayor has some really big challenges ahead. And even if people aren't ranking the pandemic as their top issue, it is definitely defining all of them. I'm sure we have plenty of listeners to this podcast who are based in New York or the New York area, but it's not most of them. And so for an audience that's maybe more focused on national politics, do you think there are lessons to be drawn from this mayoral primary about the Democratic Party writ large? And I'll just say, I think an obvious one would be you look at the 2020 Democratic presidential primary and you had all of this energy on the left and this abundance of candidates who were representing all of these different 
left to far left ideas, progressive ideas. Ultimately, Joe Biden won the primary, won the election. Something similar appears to be happening here where you had all of this energy on the left amongst the democratic socialists of America, even in Brooklyn and so on. And the people who are doing the best are the moderates and not even really abashedly so, but the kind of proud moderates in some ways. Do you think that tells us something about the Democratic Party more broadly? Is that a fluke? Is it all about timing? What should we make of it? I have so many conversations with people about this. And, you know, I very often ask people how they're ranking their candidates. And something I hear over and over is, I just don't have my Joe Biden. And my Joe Biden is like the quote unquote safe, comfortable candidate. Every candidate in this race has something that maybe you like them, but there's that one thing that kind of makes you nervous about them. But to your point about the moderates, we are seeing a similar trend here in New York City. And I know there's a lot of back and forth about what that means in terms of the party's left flank. I did not know if this was going to be an election about a big idea or a big vision, something or someone that would make people feel inspired. I think it's become an election about getting the city under control. Not that the city is out of control, but the truth is that the next couple of years are really going to be key to ensure that people can recuperate from everything that they've had to go through in the last year. So I think people are looking for that steady hand. There is a lot of energy among the left here in the city, but I am not seeing that coalescing of the movement behind any one candidate or a coalescing of the movement as a whole to sort of come together and speak as one. I see it as pretty fractured, and I think we've seen versions of that at the national level. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to point out the Democratic Socialists of America have stayed out of the mayor's race. AOC has not endorsed in the mayor's race. Some of these folks kind of surveyed the field and said, "Mm, we're not getting anywhere near that. And they focused their attention elsewhere. You know, AOC's biggest endorsement is in the city controller's race. The DSA has a big slate of city council candidates, many of whom look quite likely to succeed. So looking forward to what the dynamic is going to be, You may end up with a moderate mayor and a very uh, progressive city council who will then have to come to some kind of accommodation or else just fight all the time. We'll see how that turns out. But you'll have both of those positions represented. And I mean, the other thing, and I think this was seen at the national level, that a lot of voters aren't necessarily that ideological. I mean, enough to say, oh, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a liberal or a conservative. But these sort of fine grains within that, it actually, looking at ranked choice voting is one way to demonstrate that a lot of people aren't that ideological because when you think about, okay, who am I going to rank first? Okay, maybe I like Catherine Garcia and who am I going to do second? Oh, Diane Morales. You know, I've heard some of these rankings that aren't, wouldn't necessarily, you would think would be coherent ideologically, but that isn't necessarily always what people are looking for. Not everyone has a strong opinion on what the budget should be of the NYPD, or should we keep the specialized high school admission test or get rid of it? Some people do, and they have their set of issues they care about, but they're looking for qualities in a candidate that may go beyond that and that don't always 
line up with what you would think. So some of these rankings you see, someone like Adriano Espeyad, for instance, who took away his endorsement of Scott Stringer because of these harassment allegations and then went to Eric Adams. So in like our sort of continuum, it's, oh, he traded in a progressive and he went to a moderate. But it's kind of a continuum and a lot of people are not evaluating it that way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and something that we learn in national elections a lot and is something that's important to relearn. People have all kinds of reasons why they support candidates. And like us in the political observer world like to try to put voters in boxes that they oftentimes don't end up fitting in. And and it can be hard to explain why someone's attracted to a particular candidate. So important reminder there. Closing out, I do want to come back to this ranked choice voting issue, which we brought up throughout the conversation. It's going to be the first time that New York is going to use ranked choice voting in a municipal election. And in a Fontas poll that was out this week, so Fontas is a lobbying group that's not affiliated with any of the candidates, it showed that 40% of likely Democratic primary voters know little or nothing about ranked choice voting, and that about 30% plan to only pick one candidate. So one, why is the city using ranked choice voting? And what is the city doing to try to educate people about this new form of voting with only three and a half weeks left now before people head to the polls? Right. Well, ranked choice voting was approved in a referendum in 2019 general election. It was approved by a very large margin, pretty overwhelmingly, but it was an extremely low turnout election that no one really paid any attention to. And the arguments for it have been some of your classic good government arguments, the idea that you don't want someone who only has 20 percent support to ultimately win an election. That isn't really fair. You want someone who's able to muster a majority, at least under some way, shape or form. As Gloria mentioned before, there have been some arguments that it would make people try to broaden their base and appeal more broadly across the electorate. There have been some arguments that it would decrease negative campaigning, which that didn't work not out. Really seem to, <laughs> did not seem to have actually worked out, but that's what people claimed. And at the time that it passed, there really wasn't any organized opposition to it. Since then, some more opposition to it has emerged. I think, you know, some people say it's confusing, it's hard to understand. I, I think... There are sort of two levels of like understanding that are needed. One is just how the system works. And I think most people have been able to figure that out. It's not, you know, okay, you rank your favorites, got it. But the other thing is it's a lot of information you need to intelligently rank five people, not just in a mayor's race, but then in a controller's race or city council race, all these other races. Even as a political reporter, I don't know that I would know enough about the five candidates in my city council district to really formulate something rational in that. Like, it's a lot of work. So some people are just going to pick one and you're allowed to do that. It's fine. Your vote may not end up counting if it goes down the levels, but you can just pick your favorite and do the way you always did. But other than that, you know, are people just kind of slotting in names like, oh, this person sounds okay. Okay, I guess they're four and I guess so-and-so is three how much homework is really going to go into it versus picking names from a list. Yeah, I think this is another example where we see there are people in New York City known as this, your super primary engaged voters, right? People who vote in every election. And then you have people who only vote in your presidentials and your gubernatorials. It's actually kind of the argument that Andrew Yang has made to explain why he hasn't voted in local elections uh, over the last couple of years. New York, unfortunately, has very low turnout numbers when it comes to primaries. So I think we will see a challenge when it comes 
to the selection and the use of ranked choice. However, also for the first time in a mayoral primary, we will have early voting. Uh, New York passed early voting last year. We had it for the presidential primaries and we had it for the general election. And New York broke records in terms of turnout numbers. If people continue to be as engaged, my hopes are that we will see some very large numbers in the turnout. However, it's going to answer the question of whether or not the city did its job to make sure that the electorate was educated about how to do this ranked choice voting. I've been getting some mail from uh, the Board of Elections, the agency here in the city that is in charge of, of running elections, and they are sending flyers and sort of making voters aware. I've heard ads on the radio. I see it when you go up in the subways, as some of the subways have signs up trying to explain it. But the other challenge I think this is going to bring up is whether or not we have a winner on this election uh, shortly after June 22nd. And I have to tell you, you know, I've been like, I knew I couldn't make plans from like the beginning of spring through the end of June. I knew that much. And I said, maybe by July, I'll be safe. As it turns out, I'm actually not sure if I'll be safe because we might not have a winner in this election till maybe the end of July or maybe, you know, mid-July, which is crazy because I don't know what's going to happen during that time. Yeah. It's like nail-biting enough to wait for results to come in on the night of. Imagine having to wait for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's going to be a big challenge. The Board of Elections said that it will announce unofficial tallies for first-rank votes, but that it won't actually run the system that would determine the winner of the ranked choice voting process until how long after? Was it a week? Yeah, well, at least a week, I believe, is what they said. And I mean, okay, the good news is they approved software to count the votes, which you would think was (laughs) obvious. But in the city council special elections in which they used ranked choice voting for the first time, they had not approved any software, so they literally counted them all by hand on pieces of paper, and they did the tallies themselves as a human being doing that ranked choice. So that would have been a complete disaster if they tried to do that in a citywide election. So this week, they finally did actually approve the software so they'll be able to tabulate automatically. But yeah, you know, every election night, you get your results and they are going to do that for first choice. So you know who's leading for first choice. But if no one gets 50%, which at least at this point, it seems likely that no one will get 50%, They're not going to start actually running this ranking until the following week because they need to get all the absentee ballots. That's another thing we hadn't discussed is there's a bunch of more absentee ballots because of the pandemic rules means anyone can use an absentee ballot. So that used to be a negligible part of the total. Now it's going to be a significant part of the total. And then as far as how long the actual tabulation will take, I don't think we really know that. It could be a while. The Board of Elections is also kind of notorious for nothing ever goes right over there for one reason or another. So yeah, we could be in for a bit of wait. I did book my vocation for the middle of July, which... Oh, I'm with (laughs) you, Erin. Erin, I said to myself, late July, I'll be safe. And here comes the Board of Elections being so rude as to not take my plans into account. But I want to tell you that I wrote myself a note knowing that we would be discussing ranked choice because I didn't want to forget how to explain it to you. So you know that somebody either has to get 50% of the vote on the first round, and if not, then 
all the votes, and I'm reading my note now, for the lowest performing candidate are eliminated. Those voters, second choice picks, will be counted instead. And I think that's where we are losing people. They understand, okay, one through five, my, my top five favorites, I can do that. But what's going to happen with my vote if we go into these rounds of counting? Because if you look closely, then there's actually some strategy that could come with how you rank these people beyond just first, second, and third favorite. I think it's going to be really interesting if on election night we have someone who has, say, 47%, 48%, because we don't know what these candidates are going to do in terms of you know, are they going to accept that there has to be a first round of voting if someone gets 49%? It's an entire possibility. So it's really going to create sort of a crazy, unpredictable scenario for election night beyond just waiting for who the winner is. Right. Like, is one of the candidates going to try to declare victory based off of just the first rank tallies, even though that won't be the legitimate winner necessarily of the election. It's your Donald Trump move, right? If it looks like if you're close enough, why not claim it? And then what kind of chaos is that set up for the next couple of weeks? Yeah. So we should say here, thank you for pointing out, we're not going to know the winner of this election for a while. And the unofficial first tallies that get announced on election night don't mean much. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, you know, Andrew Yang put out something today saying, I'm calling on all my opponents to accept the ranked choice voting results. And it was one of those things where you're like, I don't like, what are you reacting to? Is anyone not accepting the ranked choice voting results? He just kind of threw that out there. And so it's kind of like, okay, maybe what are some people going to try to declare victory if they're ahead or try to, you know, maneuver around this in some way? Eric Adams had said he actually sort of came out and voiced some concerns about ranked choice voting. There was actually a bill introduced in the city council today attempting to repeal it, but that would not happen in time for this election if that were to happen. All right. Well, nothing says 538 Politics Podcast like a full-on drama surrounding ranked choice voting. But but, uh, I think we're going to leave things there for now. Like I mentioned at the top, we're going to be covering some aspects of this mayoral race over the coming weeks as it gets down to the wire. We can talk about urban politics, why progressives are struggling, what this tells us about the Democratic Party more broadly, and post-pandemic politics. So we got plenty of talk to talk about, but let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Gloria and Aaron. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. Gloria Pazmino is a political reporter at New York One, and Aaron Durkin is a reporter with Politico New York. Also, as a heads up, next week, our schedule is going to be slightly shifted because of Memorial Day. Our Monday podcast will come out on Tuesday. Our Thursday podcast will come out on Friday. But anyway, go enjoy yourself on Monday. Have a nice Memorial Day. Until next week, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.